Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, prenatal blood tests that screen for a range of fetal abnormalities are billed by their creators in Silicon Valley as reliable and accurate, bringing peace of mind to anxious parents. But a New York Times investigation has found that positive results on those tests are wrong about 85% of the time. We talk with the Times' Sarah Cliff. Then. A small Central Valley city has become a site of electric vehicle use innovation. We'll learn more about a program called the Green Raiteros. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. About 10 years ago, companies began offering early, non-invasive prenatal testing for chromosomal abnormalities, and it worked. A simple blood draw from the parent at about 10 weeks was found to be quite reliable at detecting Down syndrome, for example. Later, other companies wanted to get into the space and began to offer screenings for rare, often more grave conditions. A new investigation by the New York Times has found those tests are often wrong, giving an incorrect positive result about 85% of the time. Joining me now is Times investigative reporter Sarah Cliff. Welcome to Forum, Sarah. Yeah, thank you for having me. Glad to have you with us. And can you start by telling us what happened to Yael Geller, a woman you interviewed for your piece? Yeah, so Yael was um, really excited to get pregnant about two years ago. She'd been through about a year of fertility treatments, um, was thrilled to get pregnant with her second child. And she took this test at her doctor's office that she really didn't think much about. It was a screening test known as a non-invasive prenatal test. Um, She knew it would screen her pregnancy for Down syndrome, um, but that she got a call from her doctor's office about a week later that really shocked her. It said that her pregnancy had screened positive for a condition she'd never heard of called Prader-Willi syndrome. Um, And she was just shocked. Um, You know, the doctor said they didn't know much about it. 
that um, she began doing her own research on Google, realized it was quite serious and, you know, ultimately had a conversation later in that day, crying with her husband and saying, you know, there's a chance we might decide to terminate this pregnancy because of how serious this condition is. Um, you know, what Yael didn't know at the time was this screening test she took, a screening test she wasn't even aware was happening on her blood draw, you know, actually gets its positive results wrong about 93% um, of the time. Wow. Um, and that ended up being Yael's case. She went through a more invasive diagnostic test um, where they drew a small, an amniocentesis um, and it showed that her pregnancy did not have Prater Willie. And she since um, went on to have a baby who's now six months old, shows no signs of this condition. Um, and she says, looking back, you know, she is very upset. She wasn't really informed of this screening. And if she knew how often the screening generates false positives that, you know, she would have never taken it, nor will she take it with a future pregnancy. And it wasn't as if her baby was at any particular risk, right, before they administered the screening for this? No, no. You know, it wasn't a condition she had heard of. It's a condition um, called a microdeletion. These are genetic disorders that are caused by a, a small missing piece of a chromosome. And it wasn't one she asked to be screened for that she knew she was being screened for, nor did she have any you know, special risk for. She's a pretty healthy 32-year-old woman. Um, so it was a screening that her doctor had ordered, um, you know, without her realizing it, that kind of leads to this snowballing of um, medical tests. Wow. And in fact, you looked at the accuracy of tests that do look for these micro deletions, as you say, at least for others besides the one that looks mm -hmm. for Potter Willie. Can you tell me what you found out? Yeah, so what we found, and I think it's important, the context around this is that the, the NIPT tests look for, you know, things beyond microdeletions. And sometimes they perform quite well um, for Down syndrome, as you mentioned in your introduction. They, you know, tend to do quite well at detecting that. Um, but when you look at these microdeletions, which are um, newer tests that, again, look for missing pieces of chromosomes that are associated with certain syndromes, we found looking at a suite of five commonly offered microdeletion tests that the positive results are wrong about 85% of the time. And that can vary from test to test, but the performance tends to be between 80 to 93% of the women who get a positive result on one of the five screenings we investigated. It turns out that th that'll be a false positive and it's a small minority of cases where it is you know, a true finding of one of these syndromes. It's such a high number. What do the companies who make these tests say about the accuracy? Mm -hmm. Do do they make sure that physicians are aware of this, for example? So you know, they say they still see value in these tests because they are finding some true cases as well. You know, there are the people who are in the minority who do get a positive result and find out it's, um, you know, a, a true case of the syndrome, and they um, are able to prepare for any special needs their future child might have. But we also found, you know, I'd say two other important things in this space. Sometimes companies aren't producing a lot of data on these tests. You know, we found examples of at least one company that has never published a peer-reviewed study on how often its positive results from microdeletions are right and wrong. Um, so it's hard for patients to know, it's hard for doctors to know. We also found that in their advertising to providers, they use language that might make it 
difficult to know about these false positives. Um, so they say, you know, in one case, we saw a testing company advertising total confidence in every result. We saw language that said highly accurate, you know, reliable results for your peace of mind and clear negative and positive results. So I think the information they're receiving from the test makers, and when I say they, I mean both patients and doctors, can make it a little difficult to know how to think about, you know, the tests that we were investigating where most of the positive results turn out to not be true findings of a disorder. How are they able to present it this way, though? Is there no oversight for the the screening tests themselves or even how they're being described? So there is not, actually. I think this was one of the things we found really surprising in our investigation, is that this type of test is not under FDA oversight. Um, So that means the Food and Drug Administration is not examining the claims that they are making, nor are they examining the performance data, which are two things that if they were regulated by the Food and Drug Administration, the government would have the authority to do. Uh, This is considered a lab-developed test, a test that was developed in a certain lab, is performed in that same lab, and because of some kind of arcane wonky reasons, those tests have been historically exempted from Food and Drug Administration oversight. So it's, you know, a bit of a Wild West in terms of some of the marketing claims that could be made. We had some FDA officials, former FDA officials, review some of those brochures, and they were pretty much unanimous that if the government had oversight, you would not see brochures that look like what's out there right now. But are these tests becoming more commonplace? I understand that one of the things that struck you is that they are becoming quite popular based on data you've seen, at least mm-hmm. some that have been shared about how often they're administered? Yeah, so it's a little tricky to know because no one's really keeping count. Um, the best estimates we got, and these often come from Wall Street analysts who um, follow the companies that produce these tests, is about a third of pregnant women in the United States take some kind of non-invasive prenatal test. This is kind of the class of tests that we're writing about. It's a blood draw that's done in the first trimester. What we don't know is how many conditions are being, and we do know that number has been increasing sharply over the past decade. These tests only came on the market um, 10 years ago, um, and there's expected to be really fast uptake over the next five years. A lot of people think we'll be at 60 to 70% of pregnant women taking these tests. The thing we don't know is what conditions women are being screened for. And again, that's important because the test is really different performance characteristics when you're looking for a condition like Down syndrome, or if you're looking for something like Prader-Willi that we spoke about earlier. We just don't have a good handle on how pervasive the tests for the rarer diseases are right now. We're talking with Sarah Cliff, an investigative reporter for the New York Times, about her investigation into the reliability of some prenatal screening tests. Her investigation found that positive results on the tests are wrong about 85% of the time. And I'm curious, listeners, I'd like to invite you to join the conversation if you've taken any of the prenatal tests that Sarah Cliff is describing, or uh, if you just have questions or comments about what you're hearing, you can call us at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. You can reach us on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. You can email us, forum at kqed.org. One of the things that um, 
you also found you spoke with a lot of or several women who had false positives of potentially very serious chromosomal abnormalities. And and in some cases, and it's sort of hard to describe, Yael is fortunate, but Yael was able to go in right away to confirm whether the mm-hmm. result was accurate and afford that follow-up diagnostic. But it doesn't sound like that's the case for a lot of women. Yeah. So this can often be a pretty lengthy and expensive process for a woman who does screen positive on this type of test. Usually what happens and what the test makers say should happen is that, you know, if someone is to screen positive, they should be offered a further diagnostic test. The NIPT test is meant to be a screening to kind of look for who is at risk of these diseases and then should be followed with a diagnostic test afterwards. Um, But it can often take weeks, in some cases, I heard about months to get that diagnostic testing scheduled. Um, So that can be, you know, a really long period where people are in limbo from about the 11th or 12th week of their pregnancy. You know, in some cases, I've interviewed women up to the 20th week of their pregnancy waiting to find out if the positive was true or not. Um, Hmm. The testing can be pretty expensive. I've talked to women who spent over $5,000 on their follow-up testing and, you know, that was an expense they were able to bear, um, but you know, is obviously a large one. And we also know sometimes the diagnostic testing doesn't always happen, despite the recommendations of test makers. In you know, doing my reporting for this story, I interviewed three geneticists who were involved in some way with cases where a patient screened positive on one of these tests and ultimately decided to terminate the pregnancy before getting any sort of diagnostic test afterwards. Um, So, and we don't think those situations are common. We think they are pretty rare, but they also are quite serious. And we have evidence that to some degree they do happen. We're talking with Sarah Cliff. And again, if you want to share your thoughts, 866-733-6786 is the number. 866-733-6786. You can email us at forum at kqed.org. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. If you've taken any of these prenatal blood tests uh, and have an experience you'd like to share, please feel free to do so. If you just have reactions, questions, comments you'd like to put to us, feel free to do that as well. The article, the investigation in the New York Times is titled, When They Warn of Rare Disorders, These Prenatal Tests Are Usually Wrong. Stay with us for more after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about how more pregnant women are being screened for rare chromosomal abnormalities. And a new investigation by the New York Times by Sarah Cliff finds those tests are rarely accurate. And your listeners are with us sharing your reactions, questions, or even experiences. And on the line now is Angie in Alameda. Hi, Angie. Thanks for calling. 
Hi, thanks for having me. Um, I wanted, well, just wanted to share an experience. This was in 2013 and with my second baby and I was at Kaiser. Um, I just did an ultrasound and they saw something abnormal. Um, and then I just got basically about a week later, I got a call telling me some scra- uh, very scary statistics about what I could be seeing with my child. And all of a sudden, then I was referred to lab and they told me, they're like, do you want an amniocentesis or not? Here's the risks. They didn't explain anything to me. And um, it was really frightening because I just didn't know what were the chances. Um, And then eventually a doctor came in very late and told me, look, you're one of the first people that barely made the cutoff in terms of protocol to do this testing. And um, basically under I would normally not even refer you. At this point, I don't I see a lot of babies that are normal, and I think this was unwarranted. Um, so I went through two weeks of that and not being able to get an answer. And finally, when I saw a doctor, so I just it, it just definitely resonated with my experience. And it was very frightening not to understand why it was happening. And then my baby turned out totally normal. And she thanks for sharing your experience. And and Sarah Cliff, I think what I'm also reminded of in, in hearing what Angie has to say is just just the the emotional stress the 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 fear as she was saying the kind of torment that often uh, a parent goes through as they're trying to figure out whether or not these results are normal do you feel like there's a real understanding and respect for that especially among these companies that are putting out these tests yeah it's something that certainly came up in a lot of my interviews just like angie was saying this sense of not having a good grasp of what your test results mean, having really quick visits where your doctors, where you don't feel like you're getting a full explanation. And you know, when I spoke with test makers, they would often talk about the positives of screening and the possibility of catching these cases of um, rare syndromes early and preparing parents. But I don't think they see as much of kind of the anguish. And it's a little harder to, um, you know, to, count up and figure out, you know, what is that kind of cost? But in these interviews, a lot of women were regularly describing this to me as the worst time of their lives. You know, some had to take time off of work because they found they couldn't concentrate, take time off of school, um, you know, both because of just the mental anguish they were in or to go to these follow-up appointments. And, you know, pregnancy can already be a really nerve wracking time, um, you know, where you're worried about all sorts of things. And that, you know, emotional stress, I've had other women say, you know, it really lingered with them. Mm-hmm. You know, a few told me that they developed postpartum depression after their delivery. And, you know, they attributed at least some of that to going through this really stressful experience that just made it very hard to enjoy and relax in their pregnancy. Not everyone makes the decision to terminate a pregnancy based on the finding of a rare genetic issue. But you mentioned that, you know, one of the geneticists you talked to had somebody do that and then find out later after, while they were waiting for the results mm-hmm. of their of their diagnostic, their confirmation test, um, terminating their pregnancy, even though the test result ultimately came back where mm-hmm. the fetus was healthy. The other stress, it sounds like, that's added is essentially also trying to navigate your state's rules around abortion. Can you talk a little Mm -hmm. bit about that or pregnancy termination? Yeah. So we certainly have seen states rolling back um, when it is legal for women to get abortions, moving it earlier and earlier in the pregnancy. 
And that interacts with these tests in a specific way because these tests are usually administered around 10 weeks of pregnancy. And if someone does screen positive, some of the diagnostic tests they need, like an amniocentesis, can't be done till about 15 to 16 weeks of pregnancy. And then usually there's a few weeks wait for the results of that test. And that has, you know, in states where they have set their limits on abortion earlier and earlier, you could have women who are kind of bumping up against their state's limit on abortion as they're waiting for the results of their diagnostic test. And I did interview one woman who went through this um, experience in Indiana where they have a 22-week ban, meaning up to the 22nd week of pregnancy. You, you can only have an abortion that stayed up to the 22nd week of pregnancy. She remembered scrambling to get all her testing done before hitting that mark. And you know, also thinking through contingency plans. If you know the diagnostic results do come back positive, what state am I going to drive to and how am I going to arrange this? You know, she was another woman who ultimately found out her positive screening um, was was false. But for those who do think about termination when they get a positive result, it, it seems like more and more with the changing landscape of abortion legislation that they could also be navigating this other element of you know, trying to get their diagnostic testing done before um, before running up against their state's limits on abortion. Well, the listener writes, mammograms have a high false positive rate, but no one is suggesting that mm-hmm. mammograms are a bad screening tool. I'm someone who did make use of prenatal blood test screenings mm-hmm. during pregnancy. The tests are not intended to be 100% accurate, but to flag potential issues for further follow-up diagnostic testing. Mm-hmm. That's the standard of care suggested by the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. And if doctors are approaching this some other way, then that's a problem with those doctors' standards mm-hmm. of care and communication with patients, not the availability or of prenatal blood test genetic screening itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the comparison to mammograms is a really interesting one to think about. And you know, I think this writer is completely right that there are all sorts of screenings we take in medicine that are not meant to be 100% accurate. They're meant to flag who is a high-risk patient, who needs more... Um, diagnostic follow-up. And in the case of the Down syndrome screening, for example, all the obstetricians I interviewed were really unanimous that this has been a great screening tool because the positives are often right. And the screening tools we had in the past, which were usually a set of ultrasounds and blood draws, um, generated many more false positives. Um, So really these types of tests for Down syndrome have hugely reduced the amount of invasive testing that has to happen for pregnant women. I think the place where the analogy to mammograms falls apart a little bit, one is you don't really have this for-profit industry trying to sell mammograms as, as more accurate than they might be. So, you know, these brochures I talked about earlier that say total confidence in every result or brochures that never mention the possibility of a false positive Um, Those are the sorts of things that you see happening in the prenatal testing industry that you don't for something like mammograms. Um, And, you know, the other point I'd make on this is just I I spoke to a number of obstetricians who kind of questioned the value of screening for these really rare diseases that have started showing up on these tests. Um, Mm. You know, there's one disease um, that one microdeletion related syndrome that occurs in an estimated one of 100,000 pregnancies. There's another that is so rare that the testing companies don't even know how common it is. And I had one obstetrician, you know, compare running these tests to running mammograms on kids where 
it's a test you could run, but you're just not going to generate much in the way of useful findings because there isn't much there to find. And you might increase the number of women getting these invasive tests um, in a way that's quite opposite from the Down syndrome screening. So I, I think it's a you know completely fair point that these are meant to be screening tests, but because of what how they're marketed, because of what they're looking for, they there is worry among the folks I talk to who study them about whether these are an appropriate screening tool in a way something like a mammogram would be. Well, along those lines, listener Nathan writes, why bother calling a test a screening when it's wrong 90% of the time? As the parent of a six-day-old baby girl, there are too many tests out there that do more harm than good. Parents don't need the stress of tests that are complete malarkey on top of the work they do to prepare for labor and childbirth. Yeah, well, that was a very coherent email for someone who um, is a parent of a six-day-old. <laughs> right. um, Seriously. And I think that's the conclusion a lot of women I interviewed came away with. And I think it's the reason why, you know, the previous, um, you know, writer you mentioned said that the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists recommends these tests. That is true for um, three of these screenings for trisomy 13, 18, and 21, um, trisomy 21 being Down syndrome. But it's not true for the tests that we were investigating, these microdeletion tests. They are not currently endorsed by the American College of um, Obstetricians and Gynecologists. A number of obstetricians I interviewed said they would not use these tests with their with their patients. Um, so it does seem to be a bit of a fissure. And you do see some medical professionals, probably the majority of obstetricians at this point, saying, you know, I don't think this is a worthwhile test to be running on my patients. But at the same time, you do have this marketing that is happening that is saying these tests are reliable, they can give you peace of mind. And I think, you know, when you are pregnant, peace of mind is something that, you know, is quite valuable to you. And the idea you could learn more about your pregnancy and have more control can be a really alluring option to expectant parents. Yes. Caller Jessica is on the line. Jessica, join us. Hi. Thanks for having me. Um, I, I, heard, I read your article in the New York Times, and I do feel that it is important to examine this in context. So I, too, have had a false positive downstream in my life. I also work in this industry, and I, I think genetic testing is particularly exceptionalized. I've had two false positive imaging results in my life, one an incidental finding um, and one a false positive mammogram. Um, and I understand the statistics of the issue that you're speaking to, um, but I think the topic is, you know, very directly pointed at the innovators. And I understand your complaint about marketing, but physicians order these tests. These are not tests that are available direct to consumer. And so I think it is really important to remember that there is a patient requesting tests that they may not understand. There's a physician ordering tests that they may not understand. And oftentimes that first test is not reimbursed. And so the downstream cascade is not reimbursed. The parts about all of that are systemic problems, not just the problem with the innovator who manufactures the test. And so I, I, I feel like genetic testing is often exceptionalized and screening comes with harms and benefits and that must always be weighed. Screening produces harms. It always produces harms. It's the question you're raising of whether the benefits are worth it. And in very, very rare disorders, it may not be worth it. Jessica, thanks. Sarah, your reaction, but also I think this bigger question of, do doctors need to be better trained in informing patients mm -hmm. about the limitations of these tests? 
Yeah, you know, I think that's an excellent thing to think through because a lot of patients are relying on um, on their doctors for advice about should I take this test and which conditions should I be screened for. But unfortunately, a lot of this is happening in pretty quick interaction and prenatal care visits that, you know, might last 10 minutes. There's other tests that are ordered. And the folks who are ordering these, you know, obstetricians who are expert in many realms of women's health, of women's health, you know, may not be expert in, you know, all of these different screenings that they could order for a patient. You know, in my reporting, I found for at least the conditions I was writing about these micro deletions, it wasn't as much the patients requesting the tests as it was doctors ordering these tests unbeknownst to their patients, which you know is another is not something the testing companies fully have control over what the um, doctors are ordering. But at the same time, there is that advertising that they are, you know, sending to doctors with some of the words I described earlier that might influence how providers decide what screenings to order for their patients. Um, One of the things I have seen testing companies stress in a lot of their advertising is that, you know, Anyone who gets these tests should meet with a genetic counselor. If you get a positive result, you should also you should have a meeting with a genetic counselor, and um, that just often isn't available to um, to women who are going through these screening tests. Sometimes mm-hmm. their insurance doesn't cover genetic counseling. In yeah. other times, you know, one genetic counselor made the point there just literally aren't enough of us in the country to counsel each person getting this type of test. Um, so in a way, it felt like to me. Sometimes the test makers were describing this ecosystem that should surround the testing that they're creating. But right now, that ecosystem just doesn't exist. Well, a couple of comments that I think dovetail on exactly what we're talking about. Bonnie writes, as someone that had a false positive in my first pregnancy, I would say the most important thing is communication by the healthcare professionals that these tests are not diagnostic. My news was also delivered terribly by a medical assistant instead of my doctor telling me, hey, most likely this is a false positive and we'll do more screening. Education is the most important part. Um, and I and I do know when you talk to the companies, they have this vision or have communicated to you this mm-hmm. sense of this is how this should be done, um, but it isn't necessarily always the case. I also want to read this comment from Dahlia, who writes, thanks for discussing this in the excellent article. Our first child has a rare genetic condition, and we're so thankful for this option. We don't use the big companies for testing, but a small lab that could test for our specific variants and on multiple samples mm-hmm. at an out-of-pocket cost of 3000 to $5,000 for our autosomal recessive single gene disorder. Although we always confirm with amnio, we haven't received amnio results until 18 to 20 weeks. Whereas with NIPT, we receive results at eight to 10 weeks. We'd love to see this service for rare disorders covered by insurance and with thorough genetic counseling and education. Yeah, so I think this is you know an issue that gets brought up in this debate a lot is about the value of these sorts of tests. And I think there certainly you know, could be cases where patients know what they're getting into. They understand what it means if they get a positive um, in terms of how likely it is for that to truly indicate a rare genetic disorder. Um, and with that information, some of the patients I interviewed who have had false positives have even said they would do this kind of screening again. Um, just they really wish they'd understood the first time they did it, what exactly their results meant. They wish they could have done it with better understanding of this test. Um, but then there's this flip side that the other, you know, commenter mentions, 
that a lot of this is about communication of information. And, you know, I, I spoke with other people who are kind of in a similar situation who felt like they got really bad information um, when their results were initially given to them. You know, they some said their doctor didn't mention the possibility of a false positive. They were told this test was 99% accurate, um, which in, by some definitions of accuracy it is, but in terms of the question, how often is a positive, a true positive, not the right way to describe this test. Um, so it's a tricky issue. And it, it really is that weighing of the benefits of what information can this screening give versus the potential harms of you know what happens when you run a test where most the positives turn out to be wrong. Um, but yeah. one thing I think makes it difficult and a little different from other genetic screenings is that, you know, most of this was developed in a for-profit industry. Um, you know, a lot of this has not gone through the kind of elegant peer-reviewed process that you'd see of other genetic screening tests. So one of the things we're struggling with right now is just a lack of information. Um, there's very few studies on how well the tests I was writing about um, right. work, um, you know, we scanned all the literature we could find and we only found eight studies that had been done in this space that had, you know, gone through a peer review process. Um, the companies often do not publish data on how well their individual screenings work. And so that can just make it really hard to get your arms around what the benefits and harms are when you don't have basic data on what kind of results these tests are producing. Well, Bob writes, it's illegal for dietary supplement producers to overstate the benefits of their product. Shouldn't overstating the accuracy mm -hmm. of these test results be illegal also? We just have 30 seconds, but we touched on a lot of the ways that you, a lot of the things that you think needs to change as, as a result of your investigation. Any final thing to add here in 10 seconds or so? Yeah, I mean, I think the natural place for this um, to be would be in some place with Food and Drug Administration, it's Food and Drug Administration um, oversight. But right now, the way the rules are written, they're just not part of that. So the claims are really theirs to make. Sarah Cliff, investigative reporter for The New York Times. Thank you so much for talking with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Cliff's investigation is about the reliability of some commonly, now more commonly used prenatal screening tests and finding that positive results on some of these tests are wrong on average about 85% of the time. We'll have more on Forum after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary all over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening 
because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.